Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. When I see a Tony Robbins-style crowd on television, I can't help but imagine training a flamethrower into the gymnasium full of bright-eyed, needy, desperate, smartly-dressed corporate types clutching their woolly cardigans on screen. People attempting to buy or shortcut their way to enlightenment is what they are. They make me feel like peeling the skin from my face. Simply put, the, the whole thing bothers me. A little bit. At least it used to, back when you had to watch that shit on TV, back when it was 3 a.m. in the morning and it popped up on the screen. What was his name? Peter Popoff. One of those types. You know, the religious types, the self-help types. They make me feel like I want to rip my face off. A little bit. There's something creepy about the self-help section of life. The books, the seminars, the larger-than-life gurus. I don't know. I mean, I certainly get it. I understand the value in self-reflection, self-understanding, self-improvement, etc. But the genre and its people seem to trigger my darkest fantasies. Maybe it goes back to every scheming scumbag I've ever known recommending the book How to Manipulate Your Fellow Humans in Order to Get Ahead. You know that book? How to Manipulate Your Fellow Humans in Order to Get Ahead? <laughs> Is that the name? That's not the title. Can you guess the one I'm trying to get at? And I'm just trying to get the audience involved here. You know, come on. Come on now. Don't be shy. The book is How to Win Friends and Influence People. Back in the late 90s, when I briefly slipped into the nasty world of sales and religion for a little bit, too, I had it pushed on me like Bible study that book. And it was pushed on me by psychopathic charmers in cemetery suits. And I'm no better when it comes to selling yourself. It's something I've always done fairly well with. I can appreciate parts of playing life like a game, though there is a fine line between healing and stealing when it comes to matters of the soul. Monetization can muddy intention. That Tony Robbins-style crowd may appear to be full of sheep, but in my mind's eye, when I subliminally douse them in flames, many of those in the crowd begin to dance the wool-wrapped wolves beneath howling hungrily as I barbecue their prey away. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Leno. This is a true crime happening. Out to lunch. They met at a lunch during one of those weird paid corporate retreats where they try to explain to professionals what being a human being is all about. I got swept away by this concept a little bit in the intro. Swept away like Diane Marler and Brad King were about to be in this year of 1984. Brad was a former cop, headed into a career as a professor at the Western Michigan University. Big, bald, Handsome Brad fell hard for Diane, a pretty petite brunette with features that made her stand out in her chosen field, television, broadcasting. 
Much is made about her Native American roots and how she could have been a model had Diane not had real interests. And that's not to take away from models, but I mean, if I was hot, I might be one too. A talented journalist and broadcaster, Diane was a rising star when she and Brad married in the mid-80s. But while Diane King saw her career as an anchor at WUHQ-TV station in Battle Creek, Michigan, begin to take off, Brad stumbled into the marriage with his contributions, seeming to have taken more to the party life of the university rather than his duties as a professor. This is hard to believe, but Brad is caught on more than one occasion drinking at frat houses after leaving the career of being a cop. He was a cop for, I think, 10 years. And then he goes to be a professor when he meets hot Diane, hot up-and-coming Diane. And he just starts partying with his students. He fails to show up for classes on occasion, which isn't abnormal for a hungover student, but Brad's an ex-cop and a professor of criminal justice. It's just a little unprofessional, you know? And by 1991, he's managed to lose this job as a professor at the university, which is upsetting as Diane who continues to flourish and is now locally famous in Michigan for her good looks, hard-nosed journalism and as a fixture on the nightly news she was hoping to get a break here to be a mother for a few years at this point in their relationship the couple have two children three and three months old in the year of 91 and the idea had been that Brad 44 years old in the year of 1991 he'd be a full-time professor by now and I'm moving quick I'm moving very quickly so forgive me we need to acknowledge here that these are two budding professionals that at the time when they met Brad was ahead he had been a cop for 10 years and Diane was just kind of getting into her deal as being a broadcaster so she's kind of looking up to him but as she starts to flourish he starts to wilt he's unemployed and drinking on the couch at the time where he should be uh, tenured. <laughs> He's hanging out with the kids. Not nearly as fun as the keg-cracking crew at the college had been. He's just hanging out with the little kids that he's had with this, with this woman who's doing really well when it comes to broadcast journalism. And this really sucks, Brad. This wasn't the dream you and Diane had. This is far from what the two of you were told to do at the get-your-shit-together function they met at in Colorado. Maybe Brad had just been there to pick up chicks. If so, mission accomplished. I mean, he's got the hottest news anchor in Michigan tied to his boat. That's an anchor boat joke. I feel the need to explain that. She's super hot, Brad. Way to go. You're balding. You're big. You're white. Weird. She's Native American. Hot as shit. The two of you did make a good couple, but what the fuck happened? This is a time in history, in recent history, where a woman like Diane is being celebrated for her looks more so than anything else she has to offer. I think that we do it today still, but back then there was no bones about it. It's said she had a reputation for being pushy as a journalist, which when a man as a journalist would doggedly go out to her news story back in 91 or, you know, in the mid-80s when she started out, they weren't labeled the same. They would be considered a go-getter, which likely bothered Diane as it should have, who besides being a hard worker, a dutiful mother, and a volunteer constantly helping out in her community, she was now the sole breadwinner for her family, and with all this responsibility and pressure while continuing to shine each night on live 
public access television, Diane King wasn't pushy. She was driven. And on the evening of February 9th of 1991, she had literally driven her children over to her mother's house so that she and Brad could have some time alone and figure this out. Despite Brad having cheated on Diane and having been caught twice with students at frat parties, by the way, despite Diane need to remove Brad from having access to their checking account because he was tapping it for keg cash, despite the ex-cop and disgraced professor being abusive at times when they argued about all the trouble Brad was causing them, Diane wanted to make it work this weekend. But the 34-year-old professional woman would never get the chance. As when one of the kids suddenly appeared ill at the drop-off to her mom's house, Diane decided she shouldn't leave her children with her mother. She shouldn't leave her mother to have to deal with all this. She knows she's going to have to come back, or she's going to be on the phone the whole time. She's going to be worried the whole time. So she says, forget it. I'm going to take him back home. And when she pulls back into the drive of her beautiful home in the country, outside of Battle Creek, this dreary Saturday, uh, gray late winter's afternoon, the sun already beginning its exit. As Diane completes her own exit from the vehicle, she feels that maybe us being together as a family is what we needed anyway. She escapes the babbling of her three-year-old and the bawling of her infant for a moment as she gets out of the vehicle, and she maybe takes a moment then, filled that moment with a few meditative deep breaths. I know what that's like as a mother, (laughs) as a stay-at-home dad at times. You know, you just need a moment. And and is there any greater moment than just kind of stepping away from the direct situation and feeling the breeze, hearing the trees, you know? Life is okay. We're living in this great place. We're making good money. It doesn't matter that Brad's drinking up uh, 25% of it every week. I've cut that off, and I'm going to make this work, is what she's thinking. I'm trying to put my mind into the mind of a professional woman in 1991, and I'm failing. Maybe I'll click on the AI here to write some of this so that I can hit you with it. A little straighter to the heart, as some people have been doing these days with writing true crime. They've been writing with AI, I hear. Maybe I should try and see how it goes. She fills herself with a few meditative deep breaths and then is shot through the heart. Then once in the pelvis by 22 caliber rounds, seeming to have whizzed in through the gray air like the toughest of pills to swallow, bullets fired by a hidden assassin on her property. No conversation, no bargain, no appraisal of the reasons why. Diane King simply drops dead in her driveway. And a few minutes later, her children are both crying, wondering where mommy went. Eventually, Brad arrives on the scene, her husband, and he rescues his children. He'd emerged from the woods where he often took walks to clear his head. They live in the middle of nowhere and they have these walking paths out all around their house, their estate. Diane, dressed in jeans and a white sweater, is splayed out on her back in the driveway, looking up at her husband in disbelief. Unblinking and gone, sure, but in this moment she feels very much still there to Brad. Brad checks her pulse. Oh, gone. I can't believe this. Who did this? He goes into the vehicle, gets his children out, brings them into the house, 
and makes a frantic call for help. When investigators eventually arrive, some are pale and even appear green in the gills upon finding the newswoman murdered. The reason is not because of the crime itself, it's because they should have seen this coming. The death of Diane King in such a manner may mean the death of one or two or three of these lawmen's careers. Despite all of the difficulties I've outlined between Brad and Diane, Brad King isn't immediately considered the main suspect. That title goes to whomever has been ruthlessly stalking the newswoman for some time now. An unknown subject, whom to this moment had clearly not been taken seriously enough. There have been phone calls, you see. Disturbing, relentless, secret admirer-style calls that Diane had been receiving at the news station in Battle Creek. The caller had been begging Diane to meet him for lunch, and after she'd answered a few of the calls personally, she'd had a secretary begin blowing him off. Not literally. That's a poor choice of words by the AI there. Um, She's telling him that she's not around. It's around this time that she receives a message in her mailbox, a personal message, at her home in Marshall, Michigan, which was disturbing as her address was private and she felt maybe it could only have been learned by the caller stalking her, following her home from work. Even worse, the message had been cut and pasted onto a white sheet of paper then put into her mailbox. The stalker had used individual letters and words from magazines and then pasted them cut them out of the magazines and then paste them to paper. You know what I'm talking about. This, as we all know, is about the creepiest way to send a message. It read, quote, you should have gone to lunch with me, end quote. Police were informed, but they failed to take the message or the phone calls seriously. Diane King's employer did beef up security at the news station, and Diane's husband, Brad, an ex-cop, took some precautions as well installing motion lights around the house and agreeing to get a guard dog, a Doberman, which they soon did. And for a while, Diane, according to friends and family, had felt safe. But then somebody had tried to break into the house, a broken downstairs window in the night. The local marshal police, the small town, they were called out to this disturbance as well. But again, not a whole lot could be done. They just thought, eh, They'll figure it out. (laughs) Maybe the security for the news station could stretch to here. But now with Diane King lying dead in her driveway, they likely wish they'd done a lot more. And the case has given the big city treatment as a result. The time for small town buffoonery has passed. Within the hour, the King property is swarming with Michigan's top detectives. And they quickly find the spot from where the bullets likely have been fired in a barn about 70 feet away from the crime scene on the property. A shell casing for a 22 rifle is found, lying on the ground beside a window with a perfect vantage point of the driveway in which she was shot in. Later, the trajectory of the initial shot will match this spot perfectly. Somebody had gunned Diane King down from the barn on her property. One of the top canines in the state is brought in. His name's Travis, 
a German shepherd who gives the king's new Doberman a dirty look upon arriving. I heard Travis the canine was smoking a stogie and put it out in the so-called guard dog's kibble before getting to work. Some reports say Travis the canine took a shit and outed his cigar in that right in front of this Doberman, but that seems a little far-fetched to me. Suck a dick, AI. I don't know if you could do that. Can you do that, AI? It doesn't take the canine long to pick up the scent of the killer and go to the barn. The killer would have left a dousing of adrenaline while lying in wait for his victim. The scent leads the investigators from Diane's body to the initial shooting point in the barn, which the initial shot from that barn ended up being a kill shot, by the way, right through the heart. The shooter ends up firing again for good measure at close range, so the dog comes to the barn, finds a adrenaline-soaked spot by the window where Lee Harvey Oswald here to let her rip. And then the dog comes back out, there's less of a trail, and gets down to ground level and recognizes that a shot was likely taken here again, the second shot, because there's a patch, a patch of sweat, maybe. That shot traveled through Diane's pelvis, through her guts and lungs, ending up lodged by her collarbone. So we can see by this dog running there and, and here, and you can tell that those two shots, one comes from the barn. I'm sorry if I'm being redundant here. The kill shot, he comes out, and then he or she lays down for some fucking reason and takes another on his way up, or her way up. It's a guy who did this. Who we fool in AI. Them did it. For now. The scent then runs the dog into the woods, into a creek, where a 22 Remington score master rifle is found stuck in the mud, in the water of a creek there. In the water is recovered multiple shell casings, later deduced to have been the result of a killer firing off practice shots before Diane returned home and then picking up the shells. He was doing this, or she was doing this, or them was doing this as a way to sight the rifle. Travis, the canine, is not done here. He then follows the walking trail Brad King claimed to be hiking during the murder and follows the scent directly back to the crime scene where a crowd of family and friends and reporters have congregated. Apparently the killer has returned to the scene of the crime after dumping the gun. Or perhaps he never left. And I thought I could drag this a bit and bring some mystery to your day, but this AI is just fucking really getting to the point on me. <laughs> this is my excuse for shit writing. Like the disgraced Doberman, I failed you in this. Brad did it. Her husband? Either that or Travis the Canine is really rubbing it in on this Doberman and is attempting to win the guard dog job of the property, trying to win it away by sucking up to Brad, sitting on his feet directly. And isn't that sweet some of the cops might think? We've never seen Travis take such a liking to a civilian. Oh wait, he's He's not taking a liking to him. He's actually signaling that he's found the killer's feet. Like I said, oh yeah, Brad did it. They have to consider that Diane's husband, Brad, had been walking the woods around their house and his scent is everywhere on this property. So, you know, the dog 
could just be getting fucked up, but but there's no other scent. It's just it's just Brad. There's no there's no trailing scent. There's no no confusing scent other than it being Brad. And this dog is never wrong. Investigators felt from the start that Travis the canine had made short work of this crime scene. Brad King, as a result, doesn't waste any time removing himself from the investigation. He sees the dog do all this, and he's like, fuck me. I'm screwed right off the bat here. And he immediately moves himself and his kids to Colorado from Michigan. Colorado, where he and Diane had met so long ago at a self-improvement seminar that I mentioned in the beginning, and uh, he has family and friends there. It really doesn't take too long. Investigators soon build a case based on the information from the crime scene. The shell casing and the bullets match the rifle found in the riverbed. The casings from the assassin's den in the barn match as well. Even though Brad denies ever owning such a weapon, family comes forward with maids of the kings. They, they were this affluent that they had maids. They're so affluent, okay? Like, they have cash, and Diane still felt the need to cut Brad off from their money. This is how much money he was spending on just garbage and drinks and drugs and who knows, right? But they had maids, and the maids say, hey, we were cleaning the house, and the exact weapon that you're showing us was there. That 22 Special, whatever the fuck it was called. AI? Remind me what that was called? That's not how that works, eh? The gun was something that Brad would use around the property to kill off pests like crows and rodents and likely his wife, eventually, who presumably had become an issue for him by insisting they may be on the outs if he didn't change. Friends would corroborate this thought, sharing that Diane had had enough of Brad's laziness and was considering a split. She'd even been floating the idea to those close to her that her husband Brad was the one who had created the eerie threat left in the mailbox like a BTK gloat note. That detail of the cutout message on the white paper pointed in a way to Brad as well. The FBI got involved and they chimed in here, sharing that in their experience, this type of cutout lettering pasted to a page occurred so rarely and almost always in the case where someone close to the victim wanted to disguise their handwriting that they were convinced it had to be someone close to Diane, someone she knew. A chilling discovery came when police notes for the occurrence where someone attempted to break into the king's home showed that the glass was found outside of the window smashed to gain entry on the grass, which meant that the window had been broken from the inside of the house. <laughs> it's a big blunder for this criminal justice professor. But I mean, he's spending most of his time banging chicks and doing beer bongs, so you can't blame him. And a big one, a big piece of evidence, though widely overlooked, is that Brad was taking a walk in the woods around the property when all this happened, but claimed to have neither seen nor heard anything. And you have to remember that those practice shots that there's proof of, those practice shots to sight the rifle, he would have heard those. And, you know, who else would feel so comfortable taking them other than Brad, knowing that he had the property all to himself? If you're an assassin, you're not just going to casually fire off eight shots lying in wait for your target. You'd be a little bit worried about the husband in the house, wouldn't you? Anyways, it's beginning to sound like I've checked out and I'm truly using AI to write this. Like, 
I'm the one who's at to lunch and AI wrote that too. I'm stuck on this AI thing. I can't get over that people are writing their shit with AI. Is this really happening? People are writing, they're allowing AI to write their scripts for true crime and they're just reacting to the writing that the AI is doing for them and acting like it's cute. It's the laziest thing I've ever heard of. But I'm starting to feel like that a little bit here. You know, I fired off all my ammo on the intro and on uh, Travis the Canine. Forgive me. But don't forgive Brad King. Brad managed to sneak a 22 rifle into a nearby abandoned house while the trial was coming into play. Uh, this house was in close proximity to the crime scene in his house. And this rifle was found by the owner, who I guess checked in on the abandoned home from time to time. And this didn't work, which is suddenly the theme of the episode. Is that all the information I have on that? I think it is. I can't say that he was friends with this guy with who had the house where the 22 rifle was planted, but it said that Brad, because he was a professor of criminal justice, because he was an ex-cop, he knew some of the ins and outs. You know, he knew what he could do to skew and, and um, create reasonable doubt, and this was one of the things that he did. It didn't work. The gun didn't match the casings, didn't match the bullets uh, with their signatures, and uh, it was all for naught. What he had underestimated was that the local PD would bring in a larger force. He underestimated how embarrassed they would be by Brad's wife, by Diane, being murdered after she had asked for help from the local PD. He underestimated their response. And now Brad's gone forever, as is Diane. And in all this, he failed... He was, quote, out to lunch. That's the title of this, isn't it? And why did I name it that? I don't remember. Oh, yeah, the note telling Diane she should have done lunch. I am still here. This is just self-abuse. It's between me and me, you know, and the AI situation. So let's move on. Brad, he fucked up. He shot his wife thinking she was alone. The redeeming quality in Brad is that he couldn't stand to go through with it, with whatever the plan was. When he saw his kids didn't get dropped off at his mother-in-law's, they were crying in the car when he approached after shooting his wife for the second time. He saw his kids when he stood up to crying in the car. I can't believe he couldn't hear them. But he thought fast. He ran around dumping evidence in order to quickly get his kids out of the cold. It was getting colder. It was February. Amazing, he rushed to get them out of the cold while simultaneously ensuring they'd be left in it. At lunch, Brad. At least at the time of my rendition of this crime, you're at the lunch, Brad. You're at a chow line in a Michigan prison. And your kids are all growing up and they didn't get to grow up with their parents. Nothing you give a fuck about that in the first place. All you wanted to do was sit on the couch and drink beers. This AI is warming up. Not bad. Forensic File, Season 9, Episode 5, News at 11. Check it out. Ice cock, doors locked, stay paranoid. And stay tuned for another episode of Dark Topic from the archives of Dark Topic Plus, Apple Plus. Um, I'm recording off of my laptop. Apologies for the sound quality here. I'm on the road, and uh, actually I'm not on the road. I'm in my son's bedroom. I'm just not smoking and drinking. So I was going to pretend like I'm pretty cool. I'm in the back of a truck right now, uh, you know, off to some kind of case that I need to investigate, you know, out there on the road. But actually, I'm just in my son's bedroom. Uh, I'm in his bunk bed, actually. So it's not even close to as cool as that. Anyways, 
Please enjoy these uh, two offerings from the Dark Topic exclusive catalog. Uh, the episode I was supposed to release this month was too hot for TV or f- for podcasting, and uh, I didn't want to risk uh, getting canceled. If you want to see what I'm talking about, check out Patreon, check it up, a plus, another booyah plug. But uh, I'll talk to you real soon with new stuff otherwise. Thank you so much. Big love. On with the show. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. (laughs) Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app, and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, There's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. All right, everybody, Zipix toothpicks. This is something that I use all the time. So this episode is brought to you by Zipix nicotine toothpicks. Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting, uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix, nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. 
And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash darktopic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there. There are so many creeps out there. Men, women, everything in between. Children can be creepy. Animals, even. I've got this robin that just creeps around the driveway all day, its mouth open, jumping up and squawking at us when we come outside. Sure, this bird probably has a brain worm, but I can't stand the little creep. He's creeping the kids out. It's really unbelievable. The thing is obsessed with his own reflection in our van windows. From what I've read, it's screwed him up, looking into the van's windows and seeing his own reflection, and now he's keyed in on it. He thinks it's another male robin threatening his territory, but it's just him, and he's shitting all over the place, mainly the driver's side door, while he sits in the side mirror, pecking at the glass, being nuts. Forget me, but it's been going on for a week. This idiot Robin with its crazy eyes and gaping beak defending his family from his own reflection. He's a creep. You know, like, don't you have some worms to dig up and barf into your kids' mouths or whatever you fucking birds do? There's always something off with a creep. Something not right. Whether it be a bird (laughs) or a child or a woman or a man or anything in between. There's something not right with a creep. Screws loose, as they say. And you can't really reason with them. Creeps don't work on reason. And I've found that the only surefire way to get rid of one is to threaten to kill it if it won't go away. Welcome to Dark Topic. I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is a true crime happening. The Creep. The year is 2007. The month is January. And the place is Ark City, Kansas, or Arkansas City. Not to be confused with Arkansas, though spelt exactly the fucking same. The Creep 
with the blue Cadillac, 23-year-old Justin Thurber is getting away with it, with being a creep. He relentlessly pursues the pretty girls of the Cali College Tigerettes dance team, and nobody seems to know what they should do about it. He's there at cheer practice, leering. He's following girls home, offering rides, leaving roses and love notes on their windshields. He's not exactly a pickup artist, though he'll have you know he's a sandwich artist. That's what they told him he was. At the subway he was employed at near the college, Thurber is a large, imposing figure with a head that would suggest he has caveman DNA. His face doesn't fit right. There's something unsettling about him. Perhaps it's the fact that he's deeply disturbed and dangerous. By all accounts, Thurber is a dullard, but there's a brooding darkness in the eyes that indicates intelligence, even if reserved only for meanness. Dark hair, dark eyes, sallow skin, and a sadistic sneer he wears naturally. There's little redeeming quality. He's no fun, and few consider him as harmless. Justin Thurber is difficult to miss and difficult to get rid of, apparently. The Tigerettes have become accustomed to his presence, the lumbering lurch leering at them through gymnasium windows, but nothing is done about him. Maybe because it's hard to decipher whether or not he's mentally disabled. Thurber, as my eloquent friend Deadbug might say, was rocking a sub-80 IQ. And this would later seem to be somewhat an excuse for his actions, but he could drive, he could work, he could maintain relationships, one lasting years with a young woman who will later come in handy here. Treating potentially dangerous people with respect because they have some type of mental deficiency is unwise. You must meet them at their level. Thurber should have been told to go away. He should have been intimidated to do so. The same way he was intimidating the girls, stalking girls. One said she was a little girl, nine years old when he first spotted her at the public pool. Justin Thurber, 13 years old at the inception of his obsession, should have simply been told to go away. He'd been watching her for a decade. Now she was 19, a cheerleader for the college he'd never attended, except recently to devour her dance. Head spitting with the access to all these pretty college girls. Which one should he pick? In the end, the choice was obvious, as was, at least to me, that this was a calculated predator, well aware of how brutal his own intentions had always been. 19-year-old Jody Sanderholm was a petite, bright, well-meaning young woman who, by all accounts, had no enemies. Jody had been her high school's valedictorian, she was the captain of her college's cheer squad and was majoring in pre-pharmacy. The pretty brunette was in a relationship with her high school sweetheart, whom was attending college in Texas. Her focus was on her studies, her athletics, and recently her sister, who was nine months pregnant in this early January of 2007. Unfortunately for her, while completing a busy but predictable daily routine, Justin Thurber, was zeroing in on her, finally ready to do what he considered 
something he had to do for years now. He'd patiently waited for Jody to blossom, and she was finally ripe for the picking. January 5th, 2007, 11.50 a.m. Jody Sanderholm calls her mother Cindy, following cheer practice. It's Friday, and Jody is planning to eat, shower at home, then complete her day of studies before visiting her expecting sister. This is the last any of Jody's loved ones will hear from her, and by 6 o'clock that evening, they are worried enough to report her as missing. Her mother and sister had been panicking for hours before deciding to call police. Jody kept constant contact with her friends and family. When she'd failed to show up at school, everyone noticed. When she didn't answer her sister's calls that afternoon, it was so unusual that her mother Cindy tried to call her as well, but failed to get a hold of her daughter. Cindy was immediately frantic. She called friends of Jody's and found she'd not been to school. Cindy left work and went straight home. Her daughter's car was not in the driveway, and when she entered the house, she found the shower where Jody said that she was going to head directly after her cheer practice. She found the shower dry. Knowing her daughter's routine, she walked across the street. There's a dirt road there, and there's a mailbox, and she checked it. The lid was open, indicating Jody had grabbed the mail but failed to get back inside the house. Something is terribly wrong. The mother feels it in her bones. It's too early, but Cindy is convinced that her daughter has been kidnapped from the driveway while she'd been grabbing the mail. Cindy thinks Jody has been taken away in her own car, a 2003 black Dodge Stratus. And Cindy, the mother here, is right. But in the moment, it all seems too crazy, and she knows she'll need to wait until it's too late. Jody's father gets involved, and he knows his daughter. He knows something horrible has happened here, something untoward. She wouldn't just take off. She wouldn't just go away with a friend or something like that, skip off school, and start ignoring calls from her mother and her sister. Something has happened to her. And he takes action by calling news stations by 2.30 p.m. This is only less than four hours since she was last heard of. He is convinced, only a few hours since his daughter had last made contact, that she is definitely in trouble. But that's not how this works though the investigators do respond swiftly. Jody's cheermates were interviewed, and it became immediately clear who detectives needed to speak to. Justin Thurber had quite the reputation at the college, despite not being a student there. He is questioned, and we have the killer... Spoiler alert. I know you can figure this out, but we have the guy who's done this right away. And they find that he has an alibi, albeit a suspicious one. Thurber claims to have spent the Friday in question, the day before, driving around with friends. He shares that they become stuck in some mud out by a wildlife area, and he'd been forced to walk six hours before finally calling his father to come pick him up, exhausted. His father is questioned and confirms he picked his son up near Cowley Fishing Lake. He shares that his son was soaked and covered in mud and claiming that he had been stuck out there 
in the mud in a vehicle with friends. They'd taken off and he decided to walk home. But when these so-called friends are questioned later, they don't back this story at all. In fact, they're adamant that they'd not been with Justin Thurber at all this Friday when uh, Jody disappeared. And they express their concern and displeasure at being dragged into this developing mess. Justin Thurber had a girlfriend. They recently broke up and she is sought out. She has a lot to share. She tells of Justin's obsession with Jody Sanderholm, which perks the investigator's ears. Oh my God, she's talking about his obsession with this girl who is missing. We have the guy. Tell us more. She says that Justin had been obsessed with Jody since she was a little girl and when he was just a young teen. She admits that Thurber can be aggressive in the bedroom. He enjoyed the act of choking her nearly unconscious, then allowing her to recover before doing it again. And again, I gotta say, this is a lot of information coming very quickly. This all gets figured out within a day, two days. They're all over him. The investigators. They received news that Thurber's light blue Cadillac had been caught on school surveillance, tailing Jody's car through the college campus on the Friday she disappeared. They get this information on Saturday when they've already got a hold of the potential perpetrator. The car of Justin Thurber's was circling the gymnasium like a shark all throughout that week from what they could see on these tapes. And they decide to follow up on a piece of information given by the girlfriend at this point. Thurber had once stated that he would love to kill a girl and hide her body out in a 4,300-acre wildlife area called Kaw Wildlife Area. It was his favorite spot, a place he would take his girlfriend and they would have sex at times. Investigators gain a warrant for the arrest of Justin Thurber. His lie about being with friends, his history of stalking, his girlfriend's insight, and the surveillance video are more than enough to justify this. Thurber is arrested while returning from bingo with his mother and sister. It had been little more than 24 hours since Jody Sanderholm had gone missing. A search of his home, where he lives with his parents, yields Thurber's cell phone, his Cadillac, and a wet pair of Adidas with a herringbone pattern on the soles. With help from the father, investigators recover the clothes Justin had been wearing on Friday when he claimed to have gotten stuck in the mud with friends, and he picked him up walking along a dirt road near the fishing lake. This is fast. As I keep saying, this couldn't be ticking along any smoother. But unfortunately, time has long run out. A massive search of the wilderness area ends when the following day, after getting the information about the area, this on January the 7th, Jody Hemming gone missing on January the 5th of 2007, only two days since Jody's disappearance, a searcher comes across a single flip-flop. Then further down that trail, Jody is discovered hidden beneath some leaves. Her hand is sticking out from them. Her face, neck, and torso are badly beat up once they clear the leaves from her face and her naked body. They discover this. An autopsy will later further discover that she had been strangled multiple times, likely to unconsciousness while being raped, then brought back to consciousness for more rape. Even more disturbing 
she has been sodomized with a tree branch. And it's a shocking crime. And investigators are certain they already have their killer. Which is nice. But I mean... You know, it makes you think that... Oftentimes we get on the backs of investigators and we say, God, you could have moved quicker. You need to move so quick in certain situations, and many of them. Once a person is kidnapped and the objective is to rape and then the idea is to murder, to get rid of the evidence and get rid of the witness, you probably only really, they say the first 48, how about the first 45 minutes? When it comes to saving the victim, the first 48 when it comes to catching the killer, I guess. The crime scene is well preserved. It seems everybody has done everything right in this case, except, of course, Justin Thurber. The trail leading to Jody's body shows footprints from what will later be an exact match to Thurber's recovered shoes. The flip-flop, or the, you know, sandal, plastic sandal, belongs to Jody Sanderholm. Its pair will later be found in a public washroom, along with some of the mail she'd been bringing into the house when Thurber had kidnapped her. Also found in this bathroom is Jody's Tigerette's cheer jacket. Stuffed in a chemical cistern, her dance shoes and wallet are found in a septic tank. Footprints back on the trail where she had been found murdered, told much of the story, a story that Thurber himself still keeps most of it to himself to this day. He's stupid, remember? He can't tell you what happened. Can't really remember much about it. But the prints on the trail tell a story that Thurber can't deny. He had forced Jody down the trail, but at some point she had turned to either run or fight and had lost her footwear as a result. The lack of her footprints leading to her body and the appearance of Thurber's tracks suggests he had picked his victim up. Jody was light, only five foot three, and though athletic, she would have been no match for the big brute as he hauled her kicking and screaming deeper into the woods where he had had his savage way with her for hours. And these are the scenes, the secrets killers like Thurber keep to themselves. But if we could see, if we can endure just the sight and sound of it, the excruciating amount of time that passes without mercy in these cases, there would be little doubt as to what should be done about it. There is begging. There is pleading. There is strangulation and then bringing them back, the victim. There is rape. There is fumbling around. There is beatings. There is punches to the face as the girl pleads for her life and is raped over and over again. It is a place where God does not exist, if God in fact does. He can't, she can't, it can't exist in these moments and the aura around such crime scenes. Afterwards, while it's happening, it is all evil. And this patch of woods is haunted, no doubt, from what went down there. Thurber drives Jody's car into Fishing Lake and gets soaked in the process of trying to get rid of it. He'll call his dad for a ride at around 10 p.m. when he finds it too difficult to walk the entire distance home. It's unclear how he managed to get his Cadillac back home 
in the midst of all this. But for a mentally disabled guy, whom we should take pity on apparently, he sure had it figured out, for the most part. Jody's car is soon recovered after her body is found. Her cell phone is discovered inside of the vehicle, from what I can tell. Both Jody and Thurber's cell phones will be found to have pinged the same towers on the way out to the wildlife area. They were together. A footprint is recovered from out front of the Sanderholm house that matches Thurber's shoe. A hair in Jody's car closely matches Thurber. And what I mean by that, I mean, they can't say it's a 100% match, but they can say that 99% of people would not have a hair such as this attached to their body. He's one of the 1% that it would. Most damning of all is the DNA scraped from beneath the murdered young woman's fingernails. It is Justin Thurber's. And this is a slam dunk. The trial begins on February the 10th of 2009, and it lasts seven days. The killer appears remorseless. He's defiant and rude. It's not difficult for jurors to imagine what Jody had seen in her last hours. It's that face, that ruthless, scowling face of Justin Thurbert hovering above her, sweating, no mercy in those eyes, just a smile, a wide smile, and that, from what we can see, normally smirking mouth. It will take little over three hours for the verdict to come in. Guilty of aggravated kidnapping and capital murder. With a recommendation, he be sentenced to death. The defense argues that their client is mentally incompetent and that he shouldn't be held accountable for his actions. The judge disagrees and days later hands down an order that Justin Thurber be executed via lethal injection. Unfortunately, there hasn't been an execution in Kansas since the mid-60s, so it's unlikely to happen. I don't even know why they have this as an option if they don't use it. What is happening is a lot of noise now from Thurbert's camp, claiming he is mentally disabled and therefore should not be rotting on death row, rather serving life and general population. If you're not going to do it, then... Why is he sitting on death row is what they're saying. If there's question as to whether or not he was competent enough to truly make a choice of right and wrong, like, good God, how do you even get into the situation to choose the multiple things that he had to choose? Let's start here. You stalk somebody. You fantasize about them. Uh, You fantasize about murdering them. Wrong. You stalk them. You kidnap them. Wrong. You take them out to the woods, they beg for their life, and you still beat them to the ground? Wrong. You begin to rape them. You strangle them. You bring them back to life. You allow them to live. And then you rape them again while laughing in their faces. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not just one wrong choice. It's not just a question of uh, a right or wrong choice. A singular. There are so many wrong things that happen leading up to this. He knew what he was doing. And like I said, you know, unfortunately, there hasn't been an execution in Kansas since 1965. And um, he wants to be put into the general population and taken off a death row where he can't do anything. And he feels, you know, segregated and that he's being mistreated because he's mentally incompetent. He's mentally disabled. And I, I agree. I mean, put him out there with the others. 
put him out there in the general population. Let's see how our rad, like Thurbert fares out there. And that'll do it. That'll do it for another episode of Dark Topic Plus. Let's see how he fares amongst inmates behaving the way that he's always behaved with that look in his fucking stupid face. Let's see how that works. Maybe there's an opportunity for an actual execution to be handed down. Now, you know, if you excuse me, I'm going to take off. I have a little birdie hunting to do. (laughs) Since I began writing this episode, the crazed Robin I mentioned in the beginning has finally moved on. Of course, I was forced to bring our van in for repair after the cinder block I threw at the bird imploded the windshield. And that's not what happened. But that is how you handle a creep, folks. Unfortunately, it led to me driving a pink replacement car that has made me a neighborhood creep. Anyways, these are always a little bit different. These uh, Dark Topic Plus episodes. What a wild ride. And hey, just a reminder that Dark Topic Plus is more Dark Topic. Exclusive episodes... They might not be, they are well-researched, but they're not larger cases, ones that I have a lot more to go into. They're, they're kind of like this. Offerings like Brutal and Tales from the Bottom Down and Dark Fiction are on the 13th floor, though one drops to the $5 tier each month. Until next time, keep those eyes cocked, those doors locked, and stay paranoid. Thank you.